RDT, not RDS. This is why we're all out here to support Market Basket. He keeps the prices low. We want him back. This is why we're all out here. We have support from so much people. We have raised There are a lot of reasons that workers go on strike. Better wages, better working conditions, better benefits. Those are just a few. And there are a lot of reasons that customers boycott companies, like say the company took an unpopular political stance or had some kind of major PR blunder. But it's pretty unusual for those groups to protest the same company at the same time. That was the case, though, during the summer of 2014, when tens of thousands of employees and customers came out to protest Market Basket, a New England regional grocery store chain. Support RDT, everybody. Market Basket. Come on, everybody. RDT, anything that just will help. Anybody. The reason for the protest was also unusual. They didn't start out as the result of some kind of labor dispute or customer complaint. For months, protesters came out in support of a man named Arthur T. DeMoulis. My name is Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the feud that almost destroyed Market Basket. Stay with us. In 1917, Arthur DeMoulis and his wife Ephrazine decided to leave their factory jobs to start a small grocery store in Lowell, a mid-sized working-class city in northeastern Massachusetts. They called it the DeMoulis Market. Their specialty was fresh lamb, which they processed at a slaughterhouse behind their house. During the Great Depression, the store was hit hard, especially because, like a ton of small companies at the time, they allowed their customers to buy things on credit. The store almost went under. In 1938, the couple's bank threatened to foreclose on their home unless they could come up with $100 for a payment. That doesn't sound like a lot today, but in those times, it was huge. Telemachus, their youngest son, left school to work at the store. And he was joined shortly afterwards by his older brother, George, who began working at the store when he returned from serving in World War II. George and Telemachus, who went by Mike, ran the business and eventually bought it from their parents in 1954. My name is Daniel Korshin. I'm an associate professor of marketing at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Daniel wrote the book when it comes to Market Basket. And I'm not kidding here. It's literally called We Are Market Basket. And Daniel says that under George and Mike, Market Basket thrived. Their families went on vacations together. They, uh, they were very close, and in fact, close enough that they made a pact that when, uh, if either one of them died, that the other one would uh, take care of, the, uh, of their kids and uh, make sure that they get half of, of everything that they had built. Um, they said, we're, we're getting very successful here, and if anything ever happens to either one of us, you make sure that you take care of the other side of the family and give them half of everything we, we've built over the years, which even by that time was, was considerable. Um, it was, uh, they had um, you know, a couple dozen stores at that point. George and Mike both got married, and both named their sons Arthur, after their father. Arthur S. DeMoulis on George's side, and Arthur T. DeMoulis on Mike's. The family store had turned into a mini empire by this point. And a grocery store seems like a pretty standard business now, but it was a new concept back then. The family was part of a key change happening in American society. In the 20s and 30s and even the beginning of the 40s, the supermarkets that we know today did not exist. It was, if you went to the bakery to get your baked goods, you went to the butcher to get your, your meats. Um, and, this, and they were 
you know, one of the families that took advantage of this new wave of, uh, of the supermarket model, the self-serve with the aisles and uh, the, the thing that we know, you know, that we think has always been, but that really is it's a pretty modern innovation. And a lot of it was um, what was spurred on by cars becoming ubiquitous um, because before this, every people walked to the supermarket. It was a lot tougher to get to the grocery stores. And so you had these small local shops all over the place. And then when uh, people started to get cars, the shopping trips became a little bit less frequent, but a lot larger. The business was taking off. But in 1971, tragedy hit. George was on vacation with his family in Greece when he died unexpectedly of a heart attack. He was 52 years old. The family was obviously stunned and had um, Mike uh, took over the business. And things seemed to be moving along fairly normally, like, like you would think. But, uh, but behind the scenes, uh, Mike was, um, was shifting some of the equity in the business um, so that the, he kept his promise to his brother in the sense that any work that they had done before George died um, they split 50-50 right down the middle. Uh, but the things that were any, you know, the new parts of the business, he felt, he, he seemed to feel, now I'm, you know, it's a bit conjecture, but he, but my understanding is that he, he felt that, uh, that George's kids uh, were not, they just weren't that involved in the business. They didn't love the supermarket business like, like Mike felt his own kids did. Uh, and uh, and gradually, because the business grew so much in those days, they one day in the 80s, they looked at, at uh, some of the records and found that they had a lot less equity than they thought. It was not anywhere near 50-50 anymore because of this uh, growth on the other side of the business. The truth here starts to get a little foggy. So let's start with the narrative told by George's side of the family. They argued that Mike had convinced their mother and them to sell their shares in the Demoulis supermarkets to him. They claimed that Mike had swindled them out of their money and betrayed their trust. On the other hand, Mike argued that they had sold the shares to him because they wanted to. And then, after seeing how well the business was doing, they wanted to rewrite history and cash in. Regardless, the court came down on the side of George's family. This was the first in a string of lawsuits. George's son, Arthur S., sued his uncle again for diverting assets away from the family business. In this lawsuit, Mike was stripped of his title as president of the company. Then, after a bug was found at the headquarters of Demoulis Supermarkets, Mike sued Arthur S. right back. And lost. Again. Then, another lawsuit. And another. By 2002, the family was completely at odds. All in all, the court decided to award Arthur S.'s side of the family 50.5% of the business. Arthur T.'s side had less than half. I think the, the real disappointment, the thing that really was the catalyst for the real troubles in the 2000s was that extra 0.5% that the courts gave to uh, Arthur S. and that side of the family. With the extra 0.5%, Arthur S. could essentially place anyone he liked to lead the company. But there was a problem. His sister-in-law didn't trust him and decided to throw her votes in with the other side of the family. So even though Arthur S. held a majority stake, Arthur T. basically still ran the company. And despite all these legal troubles, the business was doing great. Market Basket had grown from 3 to 4 billion in sales. 
the number of employees swelled from 14,000 to 25,000. And among employees and customers, Arthur T. was becoming a bit of a legend, having worked himself up to the top. Of course, you know, he was a bit accelerated since he was part of the family. And, uh, but he, um, as he was working his way up, he became associated and he developed very close relationships with a lot of other people, uh, you know, his contemporaries. Uh, and they all came up with him. So we have, you know, maybe not quite a dozen core people in his life in this business that were all moving up the ranks together to get with Arthur T. And they became a unit um, that thought alike, that had similar priorities. That um, And these priorities were handed down from Mike and from the grandparents of, uh, you know, we have to take care of customers. We, we have a really important place in the community. Um, we we only hire from within. They, they had a similar mentality, which is some might call it insular. Some might call it just, you know, confident in their, in their own abilities. If you look at it from the other side, though, Arthur T. was a tyrant. His cousin publicly accused him of misappropriating millions of dollars by arranging deals with companies in which Arthur T. and his family were personally invested. He even had the board of directors investigate him. The investigation came up with nothing. After the break, the family drama comes to a head. When I was a teenager, I had this kayak. One day, paddling up the coast, a tourist offered me $5 to take him out to the point. And it made me think, maybe I could do this for a living. But of course, back then, I didn't know anything about starting a business like sales, marketing, strategy. But today, with that same dream, I'd have HubSpot Academy. They offer entire courses as well as shorter individual lessons on blogging, user experience, inbound marketing, sales, and Facebook marketing, plus a lot more. And the best thing is, it's all free. Go to HubSpot.com grow to sign up for your first class and get started growing your own business. Again, that's HubSpot.com grow. Sign up and build your business better. So, this was a situation in 2013. RDT was running the day-to-day operations at Market Basket, even though he technically didn't have the majority stake. His cousin, Arthur S., was trying to find any excuse to get rid of him. Arthur S.'s side of the family, despite having 50.5% of the business, just didn't have the votes he needed to make it happen. But then, something changed. Something happened. Nobody knows, and I don't think anyone ever will quite know, at least outside the family, why uh, the member on Arthur S.'s side decided to start voting and decided to uh, liquidate her shares. And that gave the 50.5% advantage to that Arthur S. side of the family. Uh, And that set into motion one of the craziest, (laughs) people call it labor cases, but I think it's just business cases uh, in in the last hundred years, probably, in in my mind. And it's a fascinating case. And it's all because of that uh, that one vote that she started voting. As soon as she decided that she was going to pull out, the rest of the family said, you know what, this is a great chance. We can sell the company and... uh, and by doing so, we can kind of stick it to our, to our cousin, Arthur T. On June 23rd, 2014, RDT was fired, along with two other executives. The protests started the next day. 
Gene, there is so much adoration for their former CEO that many Market Basket employees today risked their job to attend this morning's rally supporting him. A man many say is the reason Market Basket is as successful as it is. Market Basket is giving its employees an ultimatum get back to work or be replaced. We're all willing to give up our job for him, and you know, we just want to back him. If they try firing our managers, I'm sure a lot of us will walk out too. Distributors joined the ranks of the protesters, and shelves went bare. Customers would drive past their local Market Basket, buy their groceries elsewhere, and then come back to the Market Basket to tape their receipt to the window just to prove that they were choosing to shop somewhere else. It's tough to understand how a community could be so loyal to the president of a grocery store. But you start to understand it a bit once you hear some stories from employees and customers. Take Terry McCarthy. Terry's daughter was seriously injured after she was hit by a drunk driver. When Terry called into Market Basket to get time off, he ended up speaking with Artie T himself. And Artie wasn't interested in talking about the work. Instead, he asked Terry if they needed to move his daughter to a different hospital to get better treatment. Terry describes that talk as the moment he realized he wasn't alone. He was part of a huge network of Market Basket employees and customers. And there are tons of other stories just like this, of RDT coming to people's aid when they needed it most. So it just made sense that when he needed them, they would return the favor. A lot of companies expect a lot of loyalty from employees, but they don't give a whole lot in return. And they don't, they don't give the sign that they're really caring and looking after. And the style at Market Basket tends to be that they give a lot to the employee, and then the employee is also expected to give a lot in, in return. And there's this, um, the company is constantly raising the bar on the expectations and saying, um, okay, we've, uh, we've done some, some for you, and now you stayed this week, and you uh, maybe you worked a little late a few weeks or you covered for someone when you didn't have to. And now we're going to give you a little bit more and they raise the bar a little bit. And then the employee feels a little bit indebted then. And it just keeps, you know, each side is keeps up, upping the ante. Uh, and, uh, and then you get to a point where we both are so loyal to each other that you have a company like market basket where people have been working there for 30, 40, uh, 50 years. Some people business had come to a standstill. This wasn't just a market basket problem anymore. The state's attorney general created a hotline just to field calls about Market Basket. Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick wrote a letter urging the two sides to come to a solution. Politicians from New Hampshire chimed in. The U.S. Secretary of Labor even had an opinion. And Bill Clinton mentioned Market Basket in a TV interview. Remember, I would go in there uh, every, you know, every few days I'd, I'd pop in and see how things were going. And I would watch in, in the grocery uh, section with the, uh, with the vegetables and things. And all of the piles of stuff would just, it would gradually disappear. And then the very last thing that was there were the yams. <laughs> so I don't know why I remember. It was the yams that lasted the longest. And eventually they went too. Uh, and so you had a store that the middle aisles that weren't perishable were, they, they were still there. You could still do your shopping there. Uh, but a lot of the, the store was, uh, was not functioning too well because they, they weren't getting any supplies in. Eventually, the standoff came to an end. On August 27th, after weeks of false starts and negotiations, shareholders reached a deal to sell the remaining 50.5% of the company's shares to the last remaining bidder. Arthur T. DeMoulis for $1.5 billion. 
Oh, it was uh, it was like the World Cup had been won. <laughs> it was uh, there. I mean, there are, you know, people were running into the parking lots of the uh, market baskets. They were uh, for days after there was at one of the stores. They they called it like a flash mob and they had hundreds of customers went in and they were playing the music, uh, that song Happy by uh, Pharrell. <laughs> He, uh, they were playing that over the loudspeakers. You know, usually they'll say there's a sale in aisle six or something like that. And here they're playing happy and people were literally dancing down the aisles. But the company still faced a huge problem. They had lost an enormous amount of money during the strikes and boycotts. Some estimates say they may have lost up to $70 million a day. And the employees knew it. There was no supply. There was um, so the warehouse was a mess. The accounting stuff was a mess. When they went back into headquarters, they apparently found uh, boxes of accounting records just all over the place. Um, there was nobody to take care of any of that stuff. So they, you know, in order to to get back, they had to really make heroic efforts to get things back on track. And to their credit, they started working that very night. A lot, a lot of the employees, they ran as soon as they heard the noise, it, it, the uh, the news. It was around maybe ten o'clock at night, uh, somewhere in there uh, on that night. And then uh, people started driving to the warehouse to get back to work to make sure they got the stores up and running again because they knew if they didn't, um, there was still a risk that that the store could go under. Within a week, it was like nothing had ever happened. The nearly $1.6 billion in debt the company took on during the boycott has nearly been paid off today. Since the summer of 2014, Market Basket has expanded and even launched a website. It almost doesn't seem real. I still can't believe it when I'm telling folks and... um, and there is some, there are a lot of lessons there about not only how to run a company, but what's, what's the purpose of the company? Who's, uh, who's, who is the company? Who owns the company? I mean, here's, this is an example of a, a case where the shareholders, uh, who most people will assume, and you'll hear in most business schools, that the shareholders own the company, right? Um, this is a case where people at this company said, you know, I know that legally you have the right to do a lot of this stuff, but we don't care. It's not your company. This is our company, and we're not going to let you take it away. Arthur Rustin Lewis acts poor Arthur T. At a market basket meeting for the trustees. And his supporters fought back and got the axe too. And all the food on the shelf started going to poo. Okay, credit time. This episode was produced by Kieran Peterson. I want to give a huge thank you to Daniel Korshin. We'll put a link to his book in this week's newsletter. And we'll also include a link to a trailer for We the People, The Market Basket Effect. That documentary was definitely an inspiration for this story. So if you know anything about podcasts, you know that they're hard to discover. So please tell a friend about us. And if you want to go a step further, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people to find us. We only have one more episode for you this season, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. It comes out next week. I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and I'll see you then. At the rallies across the state, the crowds gathered and roared that the market basket family wasn't Walmart or Core.